Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's show? My name is Terry Toppler, and this is the 533rd show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is John Brassard, author, who is going to talk about the St. Elizabeth's Fire of 1950. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buff, Rick Sweet. So to begin with, welcome to the show, John. Hi. We call this first segment Farouk to Narwin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some background on what St. Elizabeth's was? St. Elizabeth's was a mental Mm -hmm. hospital at the old Mercy Hospital complex. It would be Genesis West now. That was Mm -hmm. the site. The original Mercy Hospital building is gone now, been gone since about 1954, and it had two separate mental health wings, one for men, one for women. St. Elizabeth's was for women. On January 7th, 1950, there was a horrific fire that broke out in the building, and it is one of the largest hospital fires in the history of the United States. How did the fire start? Does anybody know? Is Was there some investigative research into what happened? Uh, there was a lot of conjecture on it, but what mm-hmm. it ended up being is that one of the patients actually started the fire after having a schizophrenic episode. I see. And how many patients were there at the time, and how many staff members were in the building at the time? There was one staff member. Uh, Well, no, I take that back. There was a handful of staff members. Uh, There was one woman who actually slept there. She had a room that Mm -hmm. she stayed at overnight. There was one duty nurse named Anna Neal, and she was the only staff member to actually die in the fire. Mm-hmm. The number of patients has never been fully disclosed, the, to- the total number of patients, but there were 40 that actually passed away. Oh my goodness. So how? Did, what was the conditions at the time uh, that caused this fire to get so out of control? It was, actually the hospital was extremely well maintained and the fire marshal later made a point out of bringing that to light. It was extremely well-maintained. All flammable materials were kept well. But the problem was it was an old building. There were no fire breaks in the building itself. And when the fire started, it had just been renovated, the building itself. And there were several coats of enamel, kind of oil-based paint throughout the building. Mm. And once it caught, it just went. And there was no fire breaks to keep it from going from floor to floor. There was no fire sprinkler system in the building. It was not required by law at that time. It was highly recommended by the fire marshal, Mm -hmm. but it was not required by law. And the Sisters of Mercy, who ran the hospital at the time, It wasn't fully explained how effective that system could be, and so they just pass it on. It was on their budget, but they pass it on to the next Mm. year to pay for renovations, patient care, etc. And so it was a combination of these perfect factors that caused this awful fire. Now, my understanding, too, being a mental institution, there were bars on the windows. Did that prevent firefighters being able to rescue um, the people that were inside? Yes, it was a huge problem. So it was kind of a double-edged sword. The reason they were put into place is to prevent suicides. It was a Mm four-story building, Mm -hmm. and they didn't want people with suicidal tendencies jumping out of a window. Mm -hmm. 
And so it was a precautionary measure. The problem was is that there was no way to easily remove them. They were padlocked shut. Some of them were rusted shut. They were driven into the brick and the wood frame around it. So when the firemen got there on the night of the fire, they had to, I mean, it's fast as the fire spread because of the factors I just mentioned, they actually had to take axes and crowbars to these bars before they could rescue patients. And there were a lot of people they just could not get to. Hmm. Had uh, the city of Davenport seen anything like this before? You know, no, there was a hospital fire in Illinois that it happened. And it is actually the second most disaster, second or first in history, if you want that distinction, I guess. Mm -hmm. But it had just happened a few months before, but there was nothing that red flagged it for St. Elizabeth's to do anything with. However, after the St. Elizabeth's fire, after the investigation and everything came out and settled out, there were a lot of older institutions that had older buildings, older constructions that re-examined their own things, and it caused them to institute better safety standards, better fire codes, etc., which led to changes in the modern day actually all over the country. So you mentioned this was on the campus of Genesis West. Yes. Um, so what stands there today, if anything? <laughs> it's a parking lot. It's a parking lot. Okay. Where St. Elizabeth's right. actually is. And mm -hmm. I talked to a former worker who was there, and she's kind of an unofficial historian of the entire site. She pointed it out as if you're behind the building closer to Lombard Street mm -hmm. and there's I think it's a parking garage for the ambulances between that and the boiler house that was St. Elizabeth's right there and I go over and I have some wonderful pictures of a well-marked parking lot but mm -hmm. that's where St. Elizabeth's was. Is there any kind of plaque to recognize what happened here? Or? None there. However, there's a cemetery where the sisters are buried. Mm -hmm. And then right across from that, the unidentified victims of the fire were buried there. And there's a plaque memorializing them. Oh, so not everybody was identified, even though they had patient records, correct? That's right. They were, they were burned so badly oh. they could not identify them. They tried their best. I see. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on Kayla, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Terry Toppler, and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is John Brassard, author, and we're talking about the St. Elizabeth's Fire of 1950, 
Our history buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. Rick, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Harry. John, uh, I mentioned to my wife this morning, that, uh, this evening rather, that I was going to be talking to you about the, the fire, and she says, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I said, what? What, what, what do you mean? Oh, yeah. It was horrible. And then she walked away. So <laughs> <laughs> hoping you can fill in some of the the, the, the vacant uh, facts. Uh, you said in the opening that there was an investigation that resulted in changes. What, what happened in the industry because of this fire? Uh, they started institutionalizing more... Uh, fire sprinkler systems, they started talking about the importance of them. Uh, one of the things that came out from St. Elizabeth's is that there was no plan for evacuation. It was pretty much gather all the patients, get them out as fast as you can. This is a big building. It's four stories, there's nooks and crannies because it's old and then it's been added on to over several decades. And so there's weird nooks and crannies and back rooms? stairwells. How many rooms would you I don't know. A lot. There's a lot. It is a big place. If you look at pictures, it's a big place. I would probably say 70 to 80 rooms. So were these separate rooms or were they wards? I mean, how was the structure for the patients? A lot of times there was kind of a structure to it. And it depends. There was a basement portion to it where there were treatments. Uh, Then it had different wards for people generally it wasn't like anyone violent or anything like that it was people suffering from nervous breakdowns it was people who had suicidal tendencies mild schizophrenia nothing like uh you know psychotics or anybody really violent that's going to do harm to people uh and it you have to think this is the day and age this is 1950s so you have people with down syndrome you probably have more severe autistics and things mixed in Mm -hmm. with this that needed perpetual care their families couldn't give it to them and so they went there they were extremely well treated by the sisters and they made sure they got the top medical care they had uh, trained psychologists there. This was not a fly-by-night operation. This was every bit. For 1950, it would be the equivalent of what we have to North today. I mean, they really cared about these people and really tried their best to get them the treatment they needed. But this is 1950. 1950 is when the first psychiatric drugs for treatment are really starting to come out on the market. So you have serious discussions in the psychiatric field about well, do we keep patients bound up all the time because they're violent, or do we not? How do we treat this? Because we don't want to do this, but they're going to hurt themselves, they're going to hurt other people. And these are legitimate questions they have. They didn't have the option of giving them some kind of drug and kind of taking the edge off, mellowing them out, so they're not a harm to people anymore. John, what... uh, 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 You made a curious comment at the introduction... There's not a known body count. They couldn't identify uh, identify um, the victims. Um, did the investigation uh, come up with even an estimate of of uh, how many people died uh, and were injured with this? It's a good question. Let me clarify. It's not that there wasn't a known body count. It was 41. It was definitely 41 people. The problem was, is that, so what happened was, is that you had the fire. They caused a temporary, the old Mercy Hospital was only about 100 yards away from St. Elizabeth's. So what they did, after a point, it stopped becoming a rescue and became 
Recovery. removal. Yeah. And right. so they're taking the bodies out and they were, instead of just laying them out on the lawn and being disrespectful, they would take them into Mercy Hospital, into the morgue there. The morgue only had so much room. And so what they did, they put out a call to all the local funeral homes to come, if you have room, come and collect them so we can store these people with respect. And so they did. And so it went all over. There were seven different funeral homes that responded. They came. They all took a certain amount. How many took what? I didn't look into those records to find out exactly how that broke down. But the next day, the coroner, a man named Wildman, uh, he took two of the sisters uh, who had actually worked with these patients and knew them, and they went from funeral home to funeral home identifying these Ouch. people. Ouch. Yeah, it was rough. There was one woman, some of them they couldn't identify. And not to be gruesome here, but there was one woman, they couldn't tell who she was, but her hair was completely untouched. And the sister remembered helping her with the hair the previous day. There was another woman they didn't recognize her, but they recognized her her clothes because the other sister had helped her get dressed that morning. I see. So, I mean, it was yeah. a really horrific thing. And there were some people, some people, most of the bodies were brought forward, were claimed by the families. There were other bodies that didn't want to be claimed at all. They had no families. The sisters were their families. And they were never claimed. There was just no way they could identify them. They were burned beyond recognition. Mm -hmm. They knew how many they had, but they didn't know everybody that wasn't claimed and they couldn't identify by records, by whatever. Then actually what they did, uh, a lot of people think it's a mass grave up there. It was not. They gave everybody... And the city got involved. There were a lot of other institutions that came out. One of the universities, acapella choirs, came out and sang hymns at the service. You had a multi-denominational service because they weren't sure who belonged to what. So they had Protestants, they had Catholics, they had everybody out there. And they gave everybody their own coffin and everybody their own grave. They couldn't mark it because they didn't know. But what they did, they put up a plaque. And it's actually like a granite marble, uh, granite slab. And it has all of the names of these guys are in here, but we don't know who's who. And that's why they don't have an individual marker. But they were very respectful, and they put a lot of thought into it. John, you mentioned that one of the nurses, Anna Neal, perished in the fire. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Anna Neal was a German immigrant. She... Mm -hmm. uh, she had just gotten married. As a matter of fact, she was not, she was an older woman. She was very good at her job and she was a nighttime supervisor. Uh, she was there. She wasn't supposed to work that night. She had tried to get the night off, uh, but she couldn't. So she was a little grumpy about being there, but she still did a good job. She made sure that everybody was doing well and everything. Uh, what had happened was, is that she died trying to get patients out. She kept going back in and trying to get out. It so happened that one of the other witnesses to the fire, she was working at the main hospital, and she came out, and by some weird twist of fate, she saw through a window, through all the smoke and the fire and everything, she saw a glimpse of Anna Neal leading patients past this big window. And these are big windows. They're you know not like a little small bathroom window thing so you can see a lot and she caught a glimpse of Anna Neal leading and she saw a couple of their patients and then it was just like they went down and that was it but she mm. died trying to get these people out and one of the other nurses actually had to identify her body later and it it was not in a great condition as you can imagine not to be mm -hmm. gruesome about it again but 
you know, but these people were identified as they were being brought out. Mm. Rick? Wow. Wow. <laughs> you said uh, after the investigation and the introduction, uh, since we are a society and culture that wants to find blame, uh, was there any individuals or individuals who were found culpable in this disaster? So what it was found is that the fire was started by a woman named Elnora Epperly. She was a confirmed schizophrenic, and she actually confessed right away. She, she had had a hallucination in her head that someone, she was married, and to this guy's credit, he stayed with her her entire life. He never divorced her, never disowned her. Uh, she told him, she had this illusion in her head that he was being tortured. Well, she had stolen his lighter. They actually did checks at the end of the night. They could smoke during the day, but they had to turn in everything at night for obvious reasons. And she had secreted away her husband's lighter, and they didn't catch it. You know, I mean, this stuff happens all the time. It's very easy to lay blame, but it just slipped by. She hid it, and she used it. First, she tried to start her cigarette pack on fire, and that didn't work. So then she set her curtains on fire. She was trying to start. She had been acting up that night. She was uneasy, and she kept walking in other patients' rooms and disturbing them. And so it was a last resort. She was locked in her room. Generally, the rooms weren't locked. But mm -hmm. to keep problems down, they locked her in her room, which the sisters didn't necessarily agree with. But, I mean, people could see it later. And so what happened was is that she set her curtains on fire and it just went up. I mean, this place was a tinderbox and nobody quite knew that, especially. I mean, mm -hmm. later on, the fire marshal and the fire chief, Lester Schick, they were critical of not having a fire sprinkler system, etc. But they recognized it was well kept, and I don't think even they knew what kind of accident they had waiting to happen. Well, the fire started, and as the nurse ran into her room and saw the flames, this patient ran out, and she got out. Well, the entire time, she kept saying, I started the fire, I started the fire, I started the fire. And they ignored her because she was one of these kind of people that took blame for everything. If there was an mm -hmm. earthquake in South America, she would take blame for it. It's like, no. Mm -hmm. Well, finally, they started listening to her, and it was a big rumor around the hospital. Right away, they knew, and it was the investigation was kept behind closed doors in the basement of Mercy Hospital. They had armed guards. Well, it wasn't armed, but they had guards outside the door to keep people from getting in. Mm -hmm. uh, they actually had one of the state fire marshals attack a photographer for taking his picture. Yeah, it was it was pretty intense time. Well, they had been investigating this woman, and she contacted a state's attorney in Illinois, in Rock Island, and confessed. And they found all of her stuff to be true. And they actually have found physical evidence at in the fire. The fire, the building was a ruin. I mean, there's the pictures are. It looks like World War II, mm -hmm. uh, Germany. I mean, it's it's pretty bad. But almost by some miracle, they found her lighter. Exactly, and it had her husband's initials on it, right where she said she dropped it. And they found there was evidence of broken glass. She had cut her thumb. They found blood on the glass. There, I mean, it was almost this miracle that they found it. And at first, they were going to charge her with first-degree murder. 
And then they realized they had uh, these psychologists examine her. And her own doctor said, no, she's just making it up. She didn't have anything to do with it. And the state psychologist is saying, no, she did. And everything points towards it. She really did this. She feels mm -hmm. terrible for this. And they realized she's mentally unfit to stand trial. And she was institutionalized. Hmm. So you said Anna Neal, back to Anna for a minute. Uh, she was the nighttime supervisor. Yeah. Was she the only staff member present? And if so, I mean, who um, gave notice to the fire department to come and how long did it take for them to arrive? Actually, it didn't take them long to arrive at all. People saw it, it was at two o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. and people, there was several people who saw it. There were nursing staff that saw it from the windows of Mercy Hospital. There was a guy, an orderly that was out having a cigarette and he saw it. He actually ran in, kicked through the front doors and ran in and grabbed a few patients and brought them out. Uh, there was a lot of heroism that night. And there was a fire station, actually it's the one right down on Marquette Street. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a private mm -hmm. residence now, but they kept all of it. I think it's hose company number six, and it's mm -hmm. actually etched in the stone entryway of their door mm -hmm. out front. And they were the first responders, I think they were there in like two minutes. Mm -hmm. And then there were people from all over. They called everybody out to that fire. But they couldn't get in. They could and they couldn't. At first they could, and the fire spreading rapidly uh, at first they could now one of the contrasts of the fire is that it was like 15 degrees outside and these fires can get 400 to 600 degrees inside and they were outside and they were chopping through bars and they rescued as many people as they could and at first they could get in and they kept making forays inside as far as they could go and that they started not being able to get in as far and there were people mm. they couldn't rescue and there were stories of people screaming and then they would see them reaching out the window and then they were just gone the how fast did the fire spread then i mean the entirely this was not instantaneous flash it it took a few minutes to spread through the building it took a while it's a big building it was probably totally engulfed in half an hour to an hour to varying degrees yeah, and you said it was a four-story building, correct? And yes. it was brick building? Yeah. So what changes did they make after that? And, and where did they, um, with the sanitarium gone, where did the surviving patients go? Uh, the patients were taken over. There was a sanitarium in West Davenport, and a lot of them were taken there. Some of them were taken by families. They went to other, there were other mental hospitals throughout Iowa that they were taken. Mm, I see. To, and Illinois. <clears throat> So I almost hate to ask this question, but you had mentioned earlier that sometimes the patients were bound to their beds. Was that the case there? At No, actually, no. Okay. that was generally not. Uh, a lot of people weren't really trouble. Uh, like the sisters were very critical of locking Elnora Epperly in her room. That was generally not done. They were very well treated. They were tried to be as gentle as possible. And that had started back in the 1800s when they started taking, when they founded Mercy Hospital, they took one of the conditions that they make a hospital for Davenport was that they took all the mentally ill people from the Scott County Poor Farm because they didn't agree with how they were being treated. And so they brought them over there and they did some actually almost revolutionary treatments for the time. And they kept that tradition going forward. You mentioned that uh, there was one staff member and 40 patients that died. How many total patients were in this four-story building uh, at the time of the fire? Total, I'm not entirely sure. I guess. Maybe upwards of 100. 100, okay. Mm. Wow. Well, yeah, that's just incredible. So obviously there are other um, 
St. Elizabeth hospitals around the country, correct? Were they of the same construction? Did they make changes uh, as a result of this devastating fire? Uh, a lot of that came through, like I mentioned, there were things that came later that they examined their own buildings. Some of them were more modern construction. Some of them had been redone after like the Great Chicago Fire. Uh, and they re-examined things. And in 1954, the old Mercy Hospital was knocked down and brought up. And a new facility put up that was with better fire stuff. I see. Well, it is customary to uh, give our guests the last word on our show. John, why do you think knowing about the St. Elizabeth's Fire of 1950 is relevant in today's world? I think that it's easy to say that we know everything there is to know and that safety is never an issue, but safety is always an issue and it should always be a concern. And the people back then thought that they had everything under control, and obviously they didn't. And all it takes is one bad event to prove you wrong. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on Kayla, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, Broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 533rd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is, entitled, is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap Zapital. My name is Terry Toppler. We would like to thank our guest, John Brassard, author, who talked with us about the St. Elizabeth's Fire of 1950. The history buff for today's show was Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on Kayla. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or Kayla. So we would like to wish all listeners to experience the great Basuta proverb, Kuhutsa Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.